This episode is brought to you by Evermill. Evermill makes the world's most elegant spice rack that features text-to-refill organic spices in compostable packets, as well as a suite of kitchen products that help you cook so you can focus on sharing meals with the ones you love. This episode is brought to you by Equipped. Equipped is a modern luxury fitness brand that creates stylish, compact, portable, and versatile fitness equipment that will inspire you to move anytime, anywhere, whether you have half a minute or half an hour. Stay tuned for some special offers from our amazing sponsors exclusively for Stairway to CEO listeners later in the show. Hello, everyone. It's Lee Green, and welcome back to the Stairway to CEO podcast. It's my mission to bring you real, honest, and unfiltered interviews with some of the most innovative founders and CEOs from all walks of life. We'll talk about their climb to the top, their stumbles along the way, and the steps they took to get them to where they are. So tune in to get inspired, listen to some real talk, and enjoy the show. Hello, everyone. I'm your host, Lee Green, and welcome back to the show. This is episode 152, and today I sat down with Joe Spector, the founder and CEO of Dutch. Dutch is the first and only all-encompassing pet telehealth platform that connects licensed veterinarians with pet parents, prescribes and ships prescriptions straight to your door, and offers insurance protection, making seeking care for your pet easier and more accessible. In this episode, Joe shares his inspiring story from growing up in a communist country where he ran away from camp at just six years old to snagging a job in investment banking at Morgan Stanley to working for and starting various startups until he met his future co-founder of Hims and Hers, Andrew Dundam, at a venture studio called Atomic. We talk about what it was like taking Hims and Hers public at a 1.6% billion-dollar valuation after just three years, how he came up with the name and concept for Dutch, why he overinvests in brand, and why, as an entrepreneur, he believes you shouldn't shy away from the biggest obstacles. If you like what you're hearing on the Stairway to CEO podcast, don't forget to click subscribe, leave us an awesome review, and check us out on stairwaytoceo.com. Thanks for listening, and I hope you enjoy this episode. Hi, Joe. How are you doing today? Good. How are you? I'm excited to be here. Yeah. Thanks so much for joining me on the show today. I'm excited to hear your story in Building Dutch, which is your second startup, right? Is that your second or is there more? My oldest daughter and I counted. I think I've had 12 startups so far. Wow. I can't wait to hear about that. You know, everybody thinks it's like your first or second one. That's like a huge success. And it's probably like the seventh or 10th. I'm excited to hear your story. Thanks for joining us. I guess let's start from the very beginning. Where are you from originally and what was childhood like for you? I'm originally from the former Soviet Union, from Uzbekistan. And my childhood, I think the closest comparison that I see now, it's almost like if I grew up in North Korea. It was very much brainwashing of communism. I you know, wore this uniform and all this communist memorabilia all over to really get yourself fully brainwashed. And it was a system that certainly not designed for an entrepreneur because it's a system where 
you, you know, have to obey. And if you ever go outside the line, you're severely punished. And I think I was always a natural, not rule follower. So Did you get in trouble day. a lot? Did you get in trouble? I mean, that sounds really tough. If you're kind of naturally rebellious and you're in that type of structure, did you get in trouble a lot? A lot. I literally, since I can remember, if you tell me to do something, I will naturally want to not do it. <laughs> And <laughs> yeah, is that in your blood? Like, or is that do you think that is like a natural thing? Like, just that's just who you are somehow, or is that like a learned behavior? It's how I came out because my parents are rule, and my brother, they're very much rule followers. I think you're I was black just born sheep. that way. Yeah, you're the black sheep of the family. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that's awesome. Yeah. What were some of the so things I that did you get in trouble? I, yeah, what happened? What were some of the stories you have for getting in trouble? From the early days, you know, I'd be sent to summer camp and I was like, I had decided for whatever reason, I don't like it. It's not, it wasn't in my plan to spend the summer away. And at six years old, I ran away from camp. So I basically literally ran away while everyone was asleep. And essentially, like, hitchhiked my way back to my grandmother's house. This is at six years old in a Tashkent, which is a city of two million people. If my kids did that today, I'd That's be terrifying. horrified. And right. Yeah. Well, so when you were six years old and you, you were like, everybody's sleeping, I'm just going to sneak out. And how did you even know how to get to your grandparents' house from there? Was it far? Oh, yeah. I think I was just like, I'll figure it out. And One did you? And I, <laughs> How long did it take you to get there yeah. in the middle of the night? It took me about, I mean, they were taking naps. That was my plan to escape. They took naps in this camp because, again, I was six years old. Oh, so it was so during the day. I, it wasn't like dark out. It's during the day. Okay, a little safer. Yeah, it was during the day. Yeah. It's a crazy story because not only did I run away, but I also, and I begged for money for the bus and subway rides that I needed to get to my grand, I guess it's like a, a Red Riding Hood story <laughs> to get to my grandmother's house. I, on the train, also, as a side note, encountered these kids who were smoking cigarettes. And at the time, again, this is in the 80s where it was not as terrible to smoke. But kids were smoking and I was very anti-smoking. And so in the middle of me running away, I also took away their cigarettes. Oh my gosh. And ran off with <laughs> Wow. That's so I think I How many how many kids were there? I mean, that's like you're you're kind of taking on a little bit, you know, how many kids and how old were they? They could have like, you know, beat you up on the train for taking away their cigarettes. For sure. They were I think I was, you know, 12 years old, probably. But I think I've always just been rebellious, strong-willed kind of a person. And that trait continued on forever. I think by the time I got to America, I was like, oh, these are my people. <laughs> <laughs> They're rebellious, too. They don't follow any <laughs> rules. So but I want to know, what was your grandparents' reaction when you showed up at their house at six years old and you were supposed to be at camp? My grandmother was just such a loving 
person who did so much for her kids. I think she didn't have a bone in her body to be mad at me. I think my mom and my dad were, you know, freaked out like crazy. And of course I got kicked out of that camp and they were like, never come back here. So I'm sure they were pissed. My, both my parents worked. So they were just like me, probably like, dang, like, what am I going to do with childcare? Right. This one, the rest of the summer. (laughs) (laughs) I I obviously didn't think about that, but yeah, I, I, continuously did stuff that just in high school, I ended up almost getting kicked out. And I took a portion of my high school at the community college. I went to, you know, when we moved to America, we lived in not a great neighborhood. We lived in subsidized housing. And so I went to a school that most people were lucky to even graduate. Where was this? Uh, In my... So I grew up in Fremont, a very blue collar city in the San Francisco Bay Area. My freshman class was about 500 people and 200 ended up actually graduating. And I would say maybe 10 went to a four-year college in this class. And early on, I, I mean, my parents told me that in America, the only way that I was going to get out of that environment was getting into a good college. So I was very, and I think I've always been fairly determined uh, person as well. So I quickly realized that the teachers there weren't serving me well. Again, this is like now as a 14, 15 year old, but that didn't go over very well with them. And like I said, I ended up getting several of the courses at the high school, basically forcing the school to allow me to enroll at community college as a way to actually be challenged and to make sure I am ready for for college. But that was like another friction point that didn't go over well. Why is that? Because they were like college, we're just focused on people, you know, as long as you're finishing school, you should be happy. And their attitude was also like, why do you even need to go to college? You know, plenty, like, I think that, and like, look, not everyone does need to go to college, but that was not my plan. But I think they were just so focused on, I remember the principal said to me, well, you know, we also need, you know, garbage men and people to pick up the trash too. So like, you should be happy with just, graduating and earning a good grade here and like what more do you need and I think that's probably the other personality for me is I've always wanted more yeah what was <laughs> like your reaction big, to like that I always bigger. what were your feelings when that person said that when that principal said that to you what was your reaction or what did you feel just like and by the way and this is you know so many times when you get rejected in startups or you rejected in fundraising yeah i think my thing is like e like no like i refuse to take no for an answer right i refuse this for this person to uh, write my history i refuse this to be what happens for me just like no <laughs> yeah where do you think that comes from because i feel you on that like someone the other day said something like to me, they're like, 
oh, you know, everybody believes doctors. Like everybody, you know, no one questions a doctor. And I'm like, I do all the time. Like, <laughs> I am probably the least trusting person about a lot of things, you know, because I just don't think that there is such thing as like this perfect person that knows everything and people mess up all the time and they're not right about a lot of things, no matter how smart you are. And so I always come from that perspective, but I'm curious, where does that come from? When someone tells you like, oh, I don't know if you should go that path. You should probably just settle on this or your startup's probably never going to make it. And so we're not going to write that check or you should probably try to go this direction with your life instead. You know, what do you think is different about the people like you, like me that say you're wrong about that and I don't agree with you at all versus the people that are saying, oh shit, maybe you're right. I think at this point, like now and I've seen enough wrong to know what you're saying, which is there are so many, you know, times when if I took no for an answer, that would not be the right way to have gone. But if I have to think about at that point what it was, I think what it was is I knew that wherever I was was not like I couldn't be there or like that answer just or that situation that couldn't be it and i think i refuse to believe that that's where i would end up that's what i would be i think that the answer in my head may not be the right answer may not be the right path but i knew sort of the floor in that where this was couldn't be it i wasn't going to be satisfied with that status quo. And I have to do something. I might have to do something else. But this situation, you know, the summer camp, the not graduating high school, that wasn't just, it's just not an option. I think that's where at that point it was coming from. Yeah. It's interesting. I always wonder why are people like that, right? The nature versus nurture type of thing. Like, where does that come from for you to not believe that about yourself? It's almost like you have this or not you, but specifically people in general that rebel. They maybe have just this like inner belief in themselves that they're capable of doing more. And it's kind of like, where does that come from? Where does that maybe confidence come from? Where does that strong will come from? You know, is that something that's grown over time or is that something that we're born with? I think it's a very interesting question and maybe we'll never know, but. Yeah, I think there's a, I bet you there's a, a spark that, you know, cause I have a younger brother who's four years younger and he is not like this personality at all. Yeah. And I think, look, I'm sure I was the older kid that might have something to do with it. Mm-hmm. Be, being a white guy might have something to do with it in that even there, you know, in that culture, being the older son, again, who would, who's to say, you know, if, if my gender was different, if my birth order was different. Mm-hmm. And so I think you early on, for example, start to do stuff. And maybe I realized, well, the punishment wasn't so bad. And the reward was actually greater. And then the next time you do it bigger, and you know, and it cascades, 
from there. So I think, right. like I said, something maybe, you know, I think there's like a spark that happens for people very early on and then it gets built up from there. Definitely. Yeah. I mean, you started at six years old escaping summer camp. So I think you started pretty early taking risks and realizing <laughs> it was a lot more fun to take the risk than just not. So I think that says a lot. So let's see, you decided to go to college. Where did you decide to go and how was your experience? I went to Berkeley and within Berkeley, you applied to go to the undergraduate business program at Haas. And at the time, that was sort of the best I could do because, well, so I was essentially paying my way for college. So living in California, I felt like the biggest bang for your buck. And then Haas, I always kind of liked that I had been good at math, but I loved people and problem solving and strategy. So it just felt like that was the best place for me. And then I think, again, you know, when you, by the way, when you come to America, you're called an alien. And I really felt like an alien because everything was so new and we're learning it for the first time. So by the time I got to college and then Haas, my only world of like knowledge was, okay, and then you go, there's accounting, consulting, or investment banking. And that was just my world. I had no idea that, that you could be an entrepreneur or you could go into a, like, I just didn't really, my universe of knowledge was so limited. So I'm sort of like, okay, let's then pick the next horizon, like a line of sight. And that's like my thing. So I got into Haas. And then from there, I was like, okay, let's get into, let's do investment banking. So I got a job at JP Morgan in New York. And to me, that was, you know, the dream, like a, someone from the former Soviet Union, like grew up in a communist system is now working on Wall Street in the heart of capitalism. And I thought that was kind of the best thing out there. Right. I mean, that's a far jump. That's a pretty far jump. So (laughs) that's amazing. And so what was your experience? I mean, you you're like living the American dream, essentially, at that time. That was the thing to do. And here you are in New York City at Morgan Stanley. What was your experience in investment banking? It was, I think, partially... It's, you know, anyone finishing college and starting their kind of their first job, some of those realities. But I think what I realized was I, it's back to not being a rule follower. Investment banking is very repetitive and it's very hierarchical. If you're an analyst, you're not going to be talking to the CEO of a company. You're just going to be putting together pitch decks. And on top of it, it's a really, as all the, you know, what you hear, it's a very soul crushing environment where, and this is kind of post 9-11. So already a stressful environment, people were uh, getting fired. So it was, you know, everyone is just incredibly mean, lots of people crying before coming into work, not a healthy environment at all. And I persevered 
And I stayed there for three years and got, you know, through the analyst program. But I think I was like, yeah, this is not for me. There's more to life than just making money. And I got to do something that is personally satisfying for me. I mean, I think meanwhile, my parents were like, Chase, you know, I know what that's about. And I can tell you even through my time at Hims, I think my mom was still like, what about that Chase job? That was a good, solid job. <laughs> Why do you want to do startups? So much uncertainty and you don't make as much money. Like that Chase job is a really solid job. And I can tell all my friends and they know, you know what that's about. But I just knew that it was not it was making me depressed. It was not a, a job that I found satisfying in any way, both in terms of what I did for the world or in terms of the actual work being done. It's very boring is what I had to sum it up. Not challenging. Yeah. So what did you end up doing? You're like, this isn't for me anymore. There's more to life than making money, as you said. So how did you get out of that and into something else? So in a still classic way, I ran away to business school because I felt like that's where I could have a safety net to discover something else. And I would say that's where I, for the first time, really discovered the idea of being an entrepreneur and that that's possible. And I entered the business plan competition that Wharton has and at the time, it felt to me like, you know, a bungee jump. Like, I think I still had this thing of like, oh, my God, how do you even start? How do you write a business plan? Like, where, like, where do you even begin? I don't know anything about this. I don't know anything. But again, I think the safety net of business school, other entrepreneurs there kind of allow you to take the jump. And that's, I think, the spark that really started to build the muscle for me. So I got into the semifinals of that business plan competition. And, and then from there, I think is when I was like, okay, I'm going to make the attempt to work in startups and see where that gets me as kind of like my next step. What was your business plan about? So... This is like hilarious. And it's definitely maybe like the first time in like a podcast I'm really talking about this. Love that. <laughs> Give us all the stuff you don't talk about on other shows. That's what this show should all be yeah. about. <laughs> so this was at the time when, and I almost think it's like an entrepreneur rite of passage is to have a dating startup app. So I- A dating idea. <laughs> Yeah. yeah, that's funny. <laughs> what era was this? Was this like pre-Tinder or? Oh, yeah, this is way pre-Tinder. This is like, okay. and I'm Jewish. This is like J-Date was popular and eHarmony. This is like really back in the day when like Match was actually a thing. So my friend and I started a company for a Hispanic dating website and it was called Quiero Latino. <laughs> okay. 
So you started a Hispanic dating site as part of your business plan at Wharton. And you were a finalist. That's right. And I did it for a year, about a year after school. Okay. So that was your first startup. And you told me you had like 12. So we'll go through all of them one by one eventually through this show. (laughs) (laughs) I want to know what they were, how long you spent on it, and, you know, why you decided to move on. So I think from there, I learned. And look, with so many startups, one of the lessons I have is you only learn by doing. Like, I think this is why people don't like MBAs in startups is because they tend to overthink and they'll do all this consumer insights research and be talking to people, but you're only going to learn by actually doing. And that's when you, when people have to open up their wallet and give you a dollar, that's when you are really going to learn true consumer behavior and what's really resonating. And so often, by the way, the devil's in the details. And so you have to continue to iterate before the sparks really fly. I think I also learned how much, I think that experience really taught me a lot of the things that were missing for me. I had absolutely zero VC relationships, you know, at all. I had no relationships to hire. And when I think about a CEO's job, it's like, fundraise and hire people. Yes. So I had like no relationships to any two product people, engineers, marketers, et cetera. And that was definitely a takeaway from that experience. And so I think over the next 10 years, I built up my LinkedIn Rolodex. I built in my VC relationships and I worked at, like I said, so many startups, I won't remember all of them, but I worked at TuneIn, which does online radio, Style C, which bills itself as an open table for haircut appointments. I seriously can't remember more than that. But I think I also, in that time, I also then learned about management and thinking through what kind of a culture I'd want to build or what's a healthy culture, what is both for the greater team as well as for the executive team. And through the whole process, also learning how do you get past no's, how do you get past setbacks, which are inevitable. And then ultimately that led me to hymns as kind of the next big. So out of the 12 businesses, <laughs> when you go back to so you have the dating site, the Hispanic dating. Are you counting Style Seed and TuneIn as startups that you you didn't start those companies, but you did work in them? Right, right. So after I start after that Pure Latino, I only worked at startups. And then Hims was the next one that I was part of co-founding. Yeah. So how did you guys come up with the idea for Hims and Hers? Obviously, huge success story there. I think it was valued at 1.6 billion after just three years, you know, went public in a SPAC deal. It's pretty incredible. How'd you guys come up with the idea? Tell us about early, early days of Hims. So Hims was born out of Atomic Studio. And at Atomic, the team comes up with hundreds of ideas, like literally 
Jack Abraham, one of the partners, just, you know, would say like he has a notebook with 500 ideas. And in a classic, what I think classic, like Silicon Valley way, where there's this environment here and you meet people, I ended up meeting Andrew Dudum, one of, uh, again, another partner at Atomic. And at the time, he was working on a photo company that was another Atomic studio business. And I think you just meet people that you personally that you think are go-getters and hustlers. And so I think we both, we liked each other and I wanted to be part of the studio, but it wasn't clear how that would happen. And back to me where I'm like, once I'm set on something, I am on it. And (laughs) there's nothing else to get in your way. Yeah. You're like, I'm on a mission. I've been in that. I'm, I'm the same way. If I have my mindset on something, there's pretty much no stopping me. And I've been in situations with it, like an accelerator I really wanted to be in, in New York. And they denied me on the first cohort instead of the second cohort. I ended up moving to New York. I showed up. I was like, I'm here. And I was like, can I just sit over there and work on some stuff today? They're like, yeah, sure. And then I showed up just every day in that same spot and they couldn't get rid of me, you know? And like, before you know it, a couple of weeks later, they're finally writing a check. (laughs) <laughs> but it's that, you know, determination when you have your mindset on something. So what did you do? How did you break in? It sounds like you're like, I want to be part of the studio. I want to do something. How'd you do it? Super similar. Andrew was like, you know, I am trying to work on this company. Why don't we keep talking and come back in six months? Six months? And, you know, we'll see what, what, where we're at. Yeah. <laughs> what? You're like, okay, see you tomorrow, 9 a.m. Like, I... <laughs> That's right. No, 100%. That's exact. I basically kept following up with him probably the next two weeks. And finally, he's like, you know, we had this hair idea that, you know, we've been kicking around since last summer. You know, why don't you come in and like see what you can do with this thing? And at the time, it was called Club Room. Hot Club name. Room. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Not a lot of people know that. And so I started to work on it. And I think when, as we talked about even that idea, I feel like I right away felt this was revolutionary because at the time, A, what you had were Bosley's and it just looked really like terrible, like everything that had been done before looked spammy and disgusting. And we were thinking of doing this in an accessible, affordable, beautiful way. And then this perfect storm where again, like so many startups, it's kind of right place, right time. Telemedicine laws were changing. And for the first time, we're allowing you to get a prescription without a physical exam. So that has been exist in the previous uh, version of things. You always have to come in person. So that combination, and also many of the patented drugs that used to cost a fortune were starting to become generic. Just to give you an idea, Viagra is a, yeah, Viagra used to cost $80 per one pill. 
And with the generic version, the cost is like 10 cents. Wow. So lots of, like I said, this perfect storm of branded to generic telemedicine laws and being able to create a business that was actually, you know, trustworthy and a beautiful experience that hadn't been done before. So to me, I think right away, I was like, this is sounds amazing and and wonderful. And I want to be a part of it. And so we, I started to work on it in early 2017. And by the summer, it was clear from a lot of the stealth tests we were running on Facebook that like all the signs pointed to a product market fit with how cheaply we were able to acquire users and how retained they were even at that time. So we, in just that year alone, it was, it's also a different time because VCs were putting in a lot more money for things at that moment. But just to give you an idea, essentially by the end of 2017, we had already raised the Series B at a $250 million valuation. So it took off very quickly, but I think we're doing a lot of the right things, but we also had a lot of great tailwinds. And now we're going to take a quick break to hear a word from our sponsors. When was the last time you looked in your spice drawer? If you're like me, you probably have to look at it every time you cook, which is a lot. And it looks like a complete disaster. Different size seasonings, different brands. It's a mess and totally uninspiring. That's until I discovered Evermill, the most beautiful and inspiring spice rack I've ever seen. And it looks gorgeous both on your countertop for everyone to see and compliment, or it looks great in your spice drawer too. Not to mention, they send you refills in compostable packets that you can get delivered delivered straight to your door simply by sending a text message. So if you're looking for an amazing gift idea, you have to check it out. They also just released two new products, a white marble salt well and an aluminum pepper mill, perfect for the person who you think has everything. You can get 15% off by using the promo code stairway15 on evermill.com. That's 15% off site-wide for the first time ever using the code stairway15 at evermill.com. Do you struggle to find time to go to the gym or even just work out at home somehow? What about the ugly weights you're probably hiding in your closet or under your bed? Out of sight, out of mind. Am I right? Meet Equipped, a female-founded luxury fitness brand with a no-pressure approach to movement that creates gorgeous weights that look so good, you can place their U-shaped weight called the U-bar on your coffee table and your friends will probably think it's a new art piece. Or if you're on the go, just throw on their U-wrap super stylish vegan leather ankle weights so that you can get a little workout in while running your errands in style. Featured in everything from Vogue to the Financial Times, Equipped makes it easier to move through life. And if you're looking for a great gift idea this holiday season, you can get 20% off on EquippedMovement.com using the promo code STAIRWAY20. That's 20% off luxury fitness equipment using the code STAIRWAY20 on EquippedMovement.com. Thank you so much to our amazing sponsors. I hope you're able to take advantage of these exclusive deals designed just for you. Now let's get back to the show. When you first started out and you're building this relationship with your 
co-founder, Andrew, was there any moments, especially those first two weeks, you know, when you're like, I really want to, there's something here, getting super excited. I want to, I know I want to work with this guy. I know I want to learn more about this opportunity. And I think you said there was like this two week time period of like trying to email and get another meeting on the, on the calendar. Was there ever a moment where this almost slipped through your fingers? Or maybe he like didn't respond oh, for, for sure. a few days and you had to figure out how to get his attention again. Like what were some of those moments? I think for me, and the, when stuff like that happens, I think, so A, I knew several people who also knew him. So they were sort of going to be my armor to help get his attention. And I happened to know them from the other startups I had worked at uh, in the Valley. And then the other kind of strategy for me is what is it that of value that I can bring to this person? So I kept sending him additional ideas or how I would execute or how I would bring value. So another thing I was telling him is like to sort of de-risk me as a candidate is to talk about how I could potentially work on saving money for the other atomic companies by renegotiating some of the big deals they have. And so it's sort of like saying, I'm sort of a no, I was like, I'm no cost to you because I'll certainly in the worst case, save you money for these other companies. And then the best case, you have someone who's helping you evaluate a new opportunity that could take off. Nice. Was there ever a moment where you were thinking he might say no? Oh, for sure. You know, I like for me, it's always a balance of that and at the same time testing the limits. So when he did give me an offer, I still actually negotiated my salary and my stock options still because I always figure it never hurts to ask. Yeah, no, I agree. (laughs) It's fun pushing the limits. As long as the person on the other end like respects that and they get it, that's the funnest part. I seem to not get a lot. I don't, you know, I think it's harder if the other person like maybe takes it the wrong way or they get like annoyed by it or whatever. That's like never a great match. (laughs) It's a personality that wants to just keep pushing and and say something a little out there, you know, they have to be a strong personality too, I think. Yeah, it's like I I pushed maybe once or there's right. a limit because you don't yeah. yeah you don't you don't want to overplay that but to totally. your but like you said on the other hand I think what over time I've also just realized that there are times when people are going to see my talents and what makes me tick and if they see that that's that perfect match and I felt like that happened with Andrew. And it's the times when there's a mismatch between my ability, my personality, and like you said, the other person thinks that any pushback is offensive. It that's probably not going to work out in itself. And I think I've had, you know, work experience where part of the reason like things I think didn't work out is that drive, like basically what makes me tick and special wasn't going to work in that environment. And what do you like mean JP by Morgan, that? Like investment, like where me wanting to go outside of the norm, go outside of the rules, 
um, try different strategies. Like, for example, that doesn't work in investment banking. It's very much like the MD gets the deal. You know, there's a set of tasks that they do, and there's a set of tasks, you know, that the associate does. There's a set of tasks that the analyst does. And you don't like uh, this, again, hierarchical system, like you don't go outside of that boundary. You can't prove yourself. So that, like, that doesn't work for me. It might work for other people who just want, okay, I'm here for three years, you know, and they just want a corporate ladder and that makes them feel safe and comfortable. Like it works for those people. It doesn't work for me. Yeah. Yeah. You sound like you like to have your hands in a bunch of different things and uh, maybe more of a generalist as well. Do you think? I find that a lot of entrepreneurs, you know, are more on the generalist side than going super deep into one particular area. Absolutely. Like I think about, I have worked in as many industries as startups, you know, radio, beauty, merchandising. And and actually even now, like I laugh when someone, when we're interviewing someone and people will say, well, you know, they don't have as much experience in X. And I think that never necessarily stopped me. Obviously, you need to have like some experience and you need to have expertise. But I think to the extent someone is like smart and willing to learn and be curious and challenge themselves, I think there's a lot that people can do outside of what they've done before or what yeah. you ascribe them to be. Totally agree. A hundred percent agree. And I think that, you know, if they're a high performer and they're eager and hungry, I mean, they're really capable of anything. I mean, <laughs> Nothing really stopping them. Why wouldn't it Absolutely. work? You know? <laughs> They'll figure it out. Yep. That's what I think. So with hims and hers, tell us about that journey. You know, obviously huge success story there. What were some of the biggest lessons learned in building that business? Biggest lessons. Number one, go do the hard things. When we were starting out, we had a choice where we could have really just basically repackaged over-the-counter items with beautiful CPG packaging. And right away, we said, no, we're going to do the hard things. We're going to do telemedicine. We're going to do delivery of prescription medication that is operationally, legally, much more difficult. And many players avoided it. One, for example, you know, you all... Prior to him, you had companies like Harry's and Dollar Shave Club that were entering men's health and wellness, but they did not get into pharmaceuticals because it's dirty, it's harder. And like I said, we always kind of ran into the fire with things that were hard. So that was a lesson from hims and a lesson I, I'm taking into Dutch of not shying away from the big obstacles because the big obstacles for, you know, that's the pain point for consumers. That's the biggest payoff. That's like the thing that makes it interesting. The easy stuff, anyone can do that. Not very defensible. So go do the hard things. I think a second lesson was how much we invested and over-invested in brand. And I see a lot of startups where, They'll hire a cheap designer. They'll hire cheap freelancers for PR. Like everything is cheap. 
And at some point that as a consumer, you feel it. And especially for a company that's selling again, medication that is doing things medically and doing things for the first time, the trust quality authority needs to seep from every corner. And so again, like over-investing in that, I think becomes critical for a healthcare brand. So that was another lesson. I also think I certainly learned a lot about fundraising and the storytelling and the relationships that go into that. That is like very much something I had very little experience about. And now after that, you know, feel a lot more confident and prepared with, with that game. So raising money, I'd say those are like the three things, three biggest lessons from him. That's great. That's really insightful in a way to sum it up. You know, it sounds like from a defensibility perspective, that's where entrepreneurs should really think about taking, going after those bigger obstacles that will differentiate them from the rest, right? Because I think interpreted the wrong way about going after, you know, because there's that lowest hanging fruit type of thing that you hear a lot in startups, like go after what seems maybe the easiest, lowest hanging fruit, right? I think that can be totally opposite of what you're saying, which is like, no, 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 go after what will make your business most defensible, which I think is really smart and fascinating. And then investing in brand, you're right. I think startups, especially with venture capital, it's always about how you can be so resourceful and spend not very much money and have huge outcomes, right? And that's really hard to do. And I think that investing in talent and investing, like you said, in brand is just so important. It's, you know, I've built a very bootstrap business myself. It's so hard to spend money when you're in that startup bootstrap mindset. And it's hard to figure out where to spend more money because you want to spend more money on everything. <laughs> you don't have it. Mm-hmm. But yeah, mm-hmm. brand is one of those key things as is talent. And then, right, storytelling. So with the fundraising thing, you know, I'm sure you heard a lot of no's. What were some of the things that you guys, you know, had to do or what were, you know, some of the worst things that investors said or some of those like stories of uh, those investors that missed out? And I don't know, just the challenges of fundraising in general. Well, I can tell you with Dutch, for example, a classic no we heard is when an investor is thinking about themselves and how this helps them. And I can tell you an interesting thing with Dutch is our typical consumer has a household income, is a woman in her 30s with a household income of $60,000 a year. That's not a VC partner. And Telemedicine, as was my thesis, it is opening up access because it's making the service much more affordable for people who can't afford it. 50% of our clients at Dutch have no vet, haven't seen a vet in three or more years. So clearly, again, someone who's getting care because we've made it convenient, but we've also made it much more affordable. And oftentimes the no's we got is the VC partner would say, well, I have a vet who I love and I spend thousands of dollars and I go, you know, every month to see my vet. And it's like, well, 
yeah, this isn't for you who has a lot of money <laughs> and time and can't like, you should keep doing that. So that's kind of like one where people only think of themselves as opposed to the potential. Like, it happens consumer. all the time with women, female founders that go out and they're building, uh, you know, something for like a female audience. And they're like, oh, let me ask my wife or like, you know, a lot of them are like, oh, I'm not the customer. So let me, I don't know about that. Right. But you're right. That, that's a, we hear that a lot. I think with investors, it's almost like if they're not going to use it, if they're not the customer, some of them have a challenge wrapping their head around the business. Yeah. So that was one. I think, you know, the other one that is a fair one, but I think there were definitely a lot of people who said, you know, because Dutch is much more early days in pet telemedicine than human. So by the time Hims came on the scene, Teladoc was already a public company and there was a lot more progress in changing the law. And we were certainly part of this wave, but it was already going. At Dutch, we were the first company to really be prescribing in as many, you know, now in 35 states, in as many states as we are. You mentioned our competitor. They're only doing advice. They're doing sort of just general advice. They're not doing any prescribing at all. So we were much more early days. And so I think many investors were like, I'm not sure that you are going to be able to really change the regulatory environment or anytime soon. Um, and to me, again, someone says no to me, that's only going to get me going harder. And I think that essentially the VCs now who are part of our board took a bet on me personally to say, okay, I do believe that Joe you know, has done it at HIMSS and he's so driven and he has the capability to do it again. So part of it is like people who are just willing to bet on the perseverance of that founder. And that's just a gut decision, you know, people make. Definitely. So tell us about Dutch. How did you come up with the idea? Where were you? What was your like aha moment? And when you said, this is my next company, where were you? What were you doing? And it has to do with how the name came to be too, which I think you'll laugh. Yeah, I want to know how you uh, came up with the name Dutch. So Hims was hitting, you know, drawing to a close. I knew the company was going to go public and I've been a early stage startup guy. I love kind of that building phase. So it was the summer of the pandemic. My wife and I were watching the last season of The Crown, and it's the one that focuses on Princess Diana. And we, uh, again, all hold up. I have three kids. Uh, decided to get a corgi, which is uh, uh, what Queen Elizabeth, the, the dogs Queen Elizabeth has. And so we were getting a corgi and we're thinking what to name it. And in the show, they say that Princess Diana's nickname growing up was Dutch because she was always fancy. So that's kind of how the name initially came into my head. And as we started to deal with our dog, whose name is, by the way, Eddie, is when, because our kids vetoed uh, Dutch, that is when I started to realize that a lot of the problems in pet healthcare were things that I helped resolve at Hims 
as far as affordability access, changing the law, operationalized pharmacy delivery. And it was eye-opening and crazy to me that pet medicine and pet healthcare was so behind human healthcare and that the laws are actually completely different and the dynamics are different. Most pet parents have no insurance. It's only about 3% versus humans. So as I just started to look into it, it seemed ripe for opportunity and efficiencies. And then as far as the name, I worked with Red Antler on our design. And I just loved, I still love Dutch because hymns in the early days was often spelled incorrectly. People spelled it like a church hymn, H-Y-M-N-S. And I was determined to have a name that you cannot spell incorrectly. And I wanted, you know, I wanted a name. Um, I think the other kind of area where in hymns kind of cornered itself, just like some of our competitors in that like hymns is gender specific. And so they had to create a hers brand. And so I was thinking about wanting a name that can grow into lots of different areas. And today, what's interesting with pets is there are so many areas of treatment. We started with anxiety and allergy, but we actually have clients who come to us for UTI issues, ear infections, digestion issues, nutrition and weight management. So there's just, you know, we cover over a dozen categories that consumers come to us for. And so I wanted a name that can feel like it can grow into lots of different areas. We're starting to launch at home diagnostics. So again, it's something that can grow into a number of different verticals. And we got the URL Dutch.com. So <laughs> there you go. That was big one. <laughs> I was thinking maybe you were like sitting with somebody at dinner and you guys went Dutch and you're like, that's the name we're going to, I should use that name, you know? <laughs> But that was actually another why actually that was another reason I liked it because so like Dutch, you split Mm -hmm. and telemedicine sort of is like you meet them halfway. So it was another added benefit, but that wasn't how I initially came up with a name. It was from watching Yeah. Crown. You're watching the crown. (laughs) (laughs) And that was in 2020, you said? Yeah. Yeah. So you launched the business, you've had it for almost two years since, I guess, launching in 2021. What has the journey been like so far? Where are you now and and how has it been going? I know you raised, I think, what, 20 million recently. Congrats. And yeah, tell us where everything is at now. It's been very wonderful and satisfying. I think, you know, I've also, back to what I said earlier, which is, I've been taking notes on how to build a team and investing in building a healthy culture and thinking about what our mission is, what we stand for, or why we exist very early on. Again, I felt that a lot of times companies are so focused on product market fit that they forget to have these hard conversations early on, or the founders are so young that maybe they're not mature to 
think about those things. And because there is such a focus on product market fit, the thinking is, let's get to that. And then we'll think of all this soft culture stuff. But the fact is, culture happens, whether it's happening, whether you like it or not. So you can either control it and be thoughtful about it or just let it happen. So I wanted to invest in that very early on. And I'm very happy about that. And then as far as the company, I think it's been interesting because I think at the start, I thought, oh, this would be just like him. So you do this, this, and I, you know, and certainly there's been lots of playbook advantages that I've had having had that experience again on building the brand on all the regulatory fights I had there. But there's definitely been nuances that are actually quite big that, like I, um, like I mentioned, the lack of insurance, the earlier days of telemedicine, how many issues pets have. Whereas again, HIMSS was still very much just like, you know, hair and sexual wellness. And you kind of just polish that machine. Whereas we have way more conditions. We have to educate the consumer a lot more because this is much more earlier behavior. So definitely nuances, but it's been, I love a challenge and it's going great. So at least it feels like we put in a lot of work, but it's working. So that feels very personally satisfying. It sounds like if it and wasn't, different. If it sounds like if it wasn't challenging, you'd be bored and probably not having fun. That's right. <laughs> In fact, there's days like right now where we did a lot of, you know, product, you know, we put a lot of stuff out and knock on wood, you know, it's working great. And I'm like, uh, we need a new problem to find that's bigger. <laughs> <laughs> this is not hard enough. I want some more yeah. obstacles, please. <laughs> <laughs> that's funny. Yes. So how big is I'm the like, team now? And then I'm like, why do I do this to myself? Right, right. The after you, when you're people. in the middle of the challenge, you're like, God, why do I? Why am I like this? Why do I do this to myself? <laughs> I'm way in yeah. over my head. <laughs> Imposter syndrome's coming back. <laughs> That's awesome. So I know you've done some investing and advising in startups. Are you doing that just as an angel investor? Partially. I think it's also wanting to pay it forward. And I feel like I had mentors along the way that were already successful in their career. And they took the time to give me pointers, give me advice, save me the trouble of making the same mistake. And so I feel like when I find entrepreneurs who are ready, because I also had many who are, they need to learn a lot more lessons before it's kind of really worth my time. But I feel like when I see entrepreneurs who are ready for my advice, I'm willing to put the time and money into those ventures. Yeah. Are you actively? Yeah. You're actively angel investing. Mm -hmm. What do you look for? Like A, like can I provide value? So it's generally going to be something in consumer healthcare kind of fields. You know, I want to make sure that I'm, I'm able to actually provide money, provide them a competitive advantage from my involvement. And then 
I look for, you know, making sure that the entrepreneur is ready to put in the work, put in the perseverance to deal with no's and, you know, is thoughtful, is resourceful when things aren't going well. So kind of, like I said, making sure they're, they're ready, make it happen. Yeah. That's awesome. So, um, Final advice, I guess, before we wrap up here, what's some final advice you have for, I guess, entrepreneurs that are tuning in, they're in the trenches trying to build their empire, their huge startup, or they're thinking about taking the leap of faith into starting their first company? You know, what's some advice you have there? And then what's next for Dutch? I would say move to the Bay Area. Really? Everything is remote. What do you mean move? I feel like you can work in the middle of Ohio and be fine with LinkedIn and like cold calling and building relationships on Zoom. I know it's not the same as in person, but. I think earlier in your career, if I wasn't in this soup of meeting people and having personal relationships, for me, I wouldn't be here. I think later in your career, when you do have that foundation, absolutely. But I think earlier in your career, I would say invest the time, however you do it, in building those relationships because it'll pay off. Like my journey from business school to HIMSS took 10 years. It took 10 years of learning and building. I don't think I would have been able to do that if I lived like in Ohio or like not in a startup hub. That's just for my story. And then what's next for Dutch? We just launched a partnership with Purina for prescription diets. So that's like, a you know, just like humans, two thirds of animals are overweight. And so that's like a huge category. So net net, it's basically launching new categories. I mentioned we're going to be launching diagnostics. So I'm excited about all the new tentacles um, that Hims is working on, Dutch is working on. I, I should have said Dutch. And then the other cool thing I'm excited about is several huge states, including California, which right now is like one of the most restrictive states for pet telemedicine, I think will ultimately change their laws. And so I'm really excited about being part of truly just like changing legislation and change, you know, allowing greater access for millions of people that have never had it before. So I'm excited for making Dutch and making pet telemedicine something that is a common consumer behavior. That's awesome. Well, congrats on your partnership with Purina. I'm one of those pet owners that's a little guilty of having an overweight cat. <laughs> She's a little curvy. <laughs> Just kidding. She's, so I might have to use Dutch to see what we can do to help her with her eating habits <laughs> or yeah. our feeding habits. Yeah, that's definitely part of it, you know, because we yeah. communicate our love through food and treats. True. But there's definitely, there's not that many, but there are veterinary diets that also are supposed to help. So yeah, I'm excited about that. 
It's funny. I don't know if you have this with your pets, but I feel like a lot of pet owners, maybe they're like me where you you see your cat every day and you're like, she's fine. She's like, got maybe it's big bones, you know, I don't know. And then you have a friend come right. over that has or like, cute. yeah, it's so cute. Cats are supposed to have a little extra love. Right. And you, your friend comes over and then she's like, oh my gosh, your cat, Callie, she's so big. She keeps getting so big. And you're like, what are you, that's offensive. You know, you can't call my cat fat yeah, in front yeah. of me. All right. Right. No body shaming. Don't body shame my animal. <laughs> <laughs> Anyways, it was so fun chatting with you, Joe. Really appreciate you sharing your story and best of luck with Dutch. I'm definitely going to be a user soon. And thanks so much for sharing your awesome story. Thank you. Thank you so much for listening to the Stairway to CEO podcast. Once again, I'm your host, Lee Green. And if you have any burning business questions, please feel free to reach us at www.stairwaytoceo.com. We'd love to hear from you. And if you like what you hear, be sure to subscribe to the show, tell your friends, leave us a review and follow us on Instagram at Stairway to CEO. Until next time, guys, keep on climbing.